And when you get there, would you hold your finger there and turn back to Isaiah chapter 53? Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to look at that first, and then we'll look at our text in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're continuing our study of the book of 1 Peter this morning, and I'll say this. I hope that this study has been an encouragement and a blessing to you. It has been to me. I hope it's been a help in your spiritual growth. This book, written by the Apostle Peter, is full of timely and relevant and practical truth. Peter wrote this book under the direction of the Holy Spirit to Christians who were suffering, who were greatly troubled. These Christians were scattered throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. That empire was a pagan empire. It was ruled by a brutal madman. And Christianity was viewed as a plague, a nuisance to the progress of society. And the worst was still to come for them. Emperor Nero, in just a few short years from the writing of this letter, in his insanity, will will set fire to the city of Rome, and he will blame it on the Christians. And that will spark a severe persecution throughout the empire, aimed particularly at those Christians. Peter himself will be executed brutally for his faith and for his work as a preacher of the gospel. And for all Christians, life is becoming more and more of a challenge, to say the least. False and ridiculous accusations will spread and will become the justification for all manner of mistreatment of these Christians. But as we have considered throughout our study, none of this was unique just to the first century Christians. This has been true for most Christians throughout most of church history. As we saw in our study of Genesis, The history of mankind is the story of man's attempt to live independently of God and God's authority and God's design and God's commands. And we see that even today in our own culture, don't we? And as society continues to become more secularized, Christians are feeling less and less at home in this world. Now, how are Christians supposed to respond to all of this? I want us to be very clear. What I've just said is not a message of gloom and doom for the Christian. Because as I've said, history is the story of mankind and his insistence on living independently of God. But that's not the prominent storyline. The prominent storyline is how God graciously saves sinners, and how he will establish his perfect kingdom once and for all and for all eternity. It is a victorious story. And so we Christians need to understand that story. We need to understand, based on that story, how to respond in the here and the now when we suffer, even for righteousness' sake. How are Christians to respond to a world that is increasingly resisting God and his authority and his people. 
The purpose of 1 Peter is to answer that question. Peter writes to remind Christians that indeed this world is not our ultimate home. Not the world as we know it. We are strangers here. We are as travelers in a foreign land. And he writes to give us a steadfast hope that will carry us through this foreign land, that will carry us through this life as we journey on toward our eternal inheritance. And so in this book, the book of 1 Peter, we find vital pastoral instruction in how to respond to the suffering we face in this world, how to think, how to behave as children who are servants of God. And Peter's emphasis all along has been on who God is, and who we are in Him. That must be the starting point for all of us. If we would live in this world with any kind of steadfast hope, then we must first and foremost lift our eyes above our circumstances, and we must look to Jesus. We must remember who He is and who we are in Him and what promises He has made to us. And then, and only then, Always with those glorious truths in mind, Peter gives practical instruction in what we are to do as we live as strangers in a foreign land. So in the last several weeks, we have been working through verses 11 through 25, where Peter has called us to live honorably before the eyes of a watching and sinful world. Peter teaches that because of who God is, because of who we are in Christ, our behavior is matters. Our behavior before the world matters. We are meant to go and live as God's people in the midst of a sinful world. And what we do matters. And how we do it matters. So we have grouped these verses, 11 through 25, together under one heading, and we've called it honorable living in a foreign land. That is practical instruction in how to live for God's glory, even in the midst of a sinful and unbelieving generation, and even though we suffer for it. So in verses 11 and 12, we saw the command to honorable living, the call to put away evil passions and behavior, to live in a way that displays the good character of God to those around us. That's the command. And then from then on, we, we looked at, what that looks like, how to put that into practice. And in verses 13 through 19, we saw the context of honorable living, namely that our response, even to civil authorities and our relationships in the workplace, are to demonstrate, above all, godly character. That we are not to be marked by defiant self-assertion or self-preservation, but first and foremost, by submission and respect. Last week, we looked at verses 19 to 21 and saw the consequences of honorable living, that the world will reject and even mistreat us when we behave in such a way because it is such a stark contrast to their behavior and their values. And yet, our endurance will demonstrate that we follow Christ, and in our endurance, we will know the favor of God. Today, we are going to consider the greatest example of honorable living in the midst of a sinful world. 
we're going to stop, we're going to slow down, we're going to look at a bunch of scripture passages. So get ready to write down references today. Because we need to stop for a moment, and in the midst of the reality of suffering as Christians, in the midst of remembering who we are and how we ought to live in this world, we need to look up and see Christ. And we need to see Christ as the suffering Savior who has accomplished salvation for us. Of all of the images of Christ and all the images of his work that we can find and that we can imagine, I wonder what would first come to your mind. The baby born in the stable. That's true, right? The worker of miracles. The perfect human being. The powerful teacher. The moral example. And we could go on. All of those things are true, but the most prominent image in Scripture, the one that seems to transcend them all, is the image of Christ as the suffering Savior. The crucified Savior. This was at the center of Paul's theology and Paul's preaching. That is why he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If we want to find true, steadfast hope as strangers in this world, we must look to Jesus, the one who suffered unjustly at the hands of sinful men, yet justly under the righteous wrath of God, who endured much affliction because he knew he was providing salvation for his people. That's why I want us first this morning to look at Isaiah 53. In the book of Isaiah, the image of the Savior as a suffering servant of God is a prominent theme. And it is most clear in chapter 53. And what's more, much of the language that's used in Isaiah 53 is used by Peter in the passage we're going to look at this morning. And I want us to see that language. So I want us to read Isaiah 53, and then we'll flip back over to 1 Peter chapter 2 in our text. Follow along with me as I look at Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. 
And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the, the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And now over to 1 Peter chapter 2. In our text for this morning, verses 21 through 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ Jesus also suffered for you, leaving, an example, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In all of this and all that we have seen in our text in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and following, we have seen that Jesus is the perfect standard and example for godly endurance in suffering. We also see that he is the perfect substitute in suffering. And he is the believer's perfect shepherd through suffering. And that is meant to be an incredible comfort to us. As in the midst of whatever it is we face in this world, in the midst of feeling like we are less and less at home here, we lift our eyes to the Savior. And we remember who he is and what he is up to. As we consider this perfect example of honorable living, in our Lord Jesus Christ, my prayer is that we would find that blessed comfort and steadfast hope in the midst of suffering that can only come from Him. In times of rest and in times of suffering, may our minds and our hearts and our hopes be steadfastly and firmly fixed on our great High Priest, on our great and good Shepherd who laid down His life that we might live eternally in him. And so first of all, we see Christ's example of honorable living displayed in his suffering. That is in the fact that he suffered and in the reason why he suffered. 
Peter writes in verse 21 here, for to you, for, for to this you have been called. What's he referring to? When he says to this you have been called, he's referring back to verses 19 and 20 and to what he has said to this point. He is talking about the, the suffering that Christians face on account of their faith. He says to this, that is to salvation and to suffering and to endurance, you have been called. And his point is that the, that the fact that the world would not take kindly to our faith should not surprise us. That the world would reject us and, and even mistreat us because we belong to the Lord should not surprise us. It should not shake us. It should not make us afraid. This is part of our calling to follow Christ. In fact, Jesus himself prepared his disciples for this very thing, did he not? When he said in Matthew 16, 24, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's not a message of come to Jesus and all your troubles will go away. That's a message of take up your cross, be willing to die, come and follow me, because the end is greater than whatever it is you have to face in the meantime. And Jesus also said in John 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In the same manner, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It makes me think that rather than be surprised when we do face persecution, we ought to be concerned if we don't. Because this is to be expected. And the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3.13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And Peter himself will write later in this epistle, 1 Peter, in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Don't be surprised. Don't be shaken. But rejoice. Peter, you don't know what I'm going through. And you're telling me to rejoice? Yes. And let me tell you, of all the apostles, Peter has the authority to tell you to rejoice when you suffer for Christ. Why? Because in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, he was one of the apostles who had been beaten and threatened for preaching the gospel. And after being beaten and threatened, he was among those who we read left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And he kept on preaching the word. That's Peter. Yet he, he knows a little something about what it means to suffer for Christ's sake. He and the other apostles who have written the same thing and, and those believers who suffered in the in the first century church, they were not weakened in their faith by the hostility of the world. They were not shaken by the world's threats. They were able even to rejoice in their suffering and to remain steadfast and faithful. Why? 
How? Because they knew they were following in the footsteps of Jesus. And their relationship with Him and their service to Him and their obedience to Him meant more to them than the comfort this world might offer. That's why John Bunyan, when he was in prison, was specifically told, we will let you go if you promise not to preach. Bunyan sat down in his prison cell and stayed. You think that's unique to the Puritans? I've already told you of an example of a preacher who's already faced the exact same thing in another place, put in jail and promised, we'll let you out if you promise not to go on with your church services. And he says, if you let me out, I'm going to church. And he sat in prison for a little longer. How? Because we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And whatever mistreatment the world might throw at us pales in comparison to the joy, to the commitment that we have to our Savior who has given so much for us. And we'll see that as the passage goes along. But that is the essence of what Peter is saying here in verse 21. Because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Those believers who suffered and remained faithful, they knew all about what it was to suffer for Christ. Peter witnessed it. He experienced it. They had seen how much Christ had done for them. They believed in him as the sovereign Savior and Lord. They trusted that he will fulfill every promise he has made to them. And therefore, like them, all who suffer in this world, even ourselves today, for Christ's sake, must not lose hearts. We need not lose hearts. But we can entrust ourselves into the care of a sovereign God who loves us, who has laid down his own life for us, as the book of Hebrews says. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And again, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, believers, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the essence of what Peter is saying here in verses 21 through 25. In our suffering and in our increasing discomfort in this world, we must rejoice in the knowledge that we are walking in the steps of Christ and we have received his grace and favor. We saw that last week in verse 20, didn't we? 
if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And since all of this is true, then in our suffering, what is it that we hold on to? What is it that carries us through even the most difficult moments of our lives? What is it that carries us through as faithful Christians in a land that we now know hates us? We hold on to our steadfast hope in Christ. And we consider the example he has set for us and how to suffer graciously in this world. And we entrust ourselves into the capable care of a faithful God. He's powerful enough and He's good enough to save you, isn't He? He's powerful enough and He is good enough to glorify you at the end of the age, isn't He? Then what makes you think He isn't powerful enough and good enough to carry you from point A to point B? Right? That is our focus. The Christ who suffered for us. Next, we see Christ's example of honorable living displayed in his innocence. And there's a, a, two aspects to innocence that I'm thinking of there, and that is innocence in his character and his behavior, and then innocence in his response to the suffering. And here we move ju past just the fact that Jesus suffered, and so will all who follow him. Here we begin to see how he suffered. We see something of his character and the godliness of his response in all of this. It is an example that we must keep in mind for our own comfort and for our own motivation in how to live and how to suffer. Peter writes in verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. That sounds a little bit like what we saw in Isaiah 53, doesn't it? Verses 7 through 9, where we read, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. That's a reference to sin in general. And there was no deceit in his mouth. All of that sounds a lot like what we have considered from the previous verses. If anyone in this world had the right to demand his human rights, or even to burn the whole city down because of his mistreatment, it was Jesus. But that is not how he behaved. In fact, we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. The cross. He was innocent in his character. He was innocent in his response to his suffering. And this is incredibly amazing, isn't it? When you think about the fact 
that Jesus committed no sin, Peter says. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. We might think in our situations that we are perfectly justified. But we're still sinners, aren't we? Not Jesus. He truly is perfect. He is the perfect God in human flesh. He is the exact and perfect representation of God to man, as we read in Colossians 1. He did keep the law perfectly. There was not one sinful act in his entire life. There was not one careless or unwholesome word that came out of his mouth. He is perfectly sinless in his thoughts, in his words, in his actions, and in his responses. And that was true even toward those who unjustly accused him, abused him, and executed him. He didn't just not defend himself for most of the time. He actually let them carry out the execution. And by the way, look at the story of Christ. That's exactly what he did. He let them carry out the execution. He laid down his life. But when Peter says when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He did not return evil for evil. He did not fight back and demand his human rights, though he could have condemned them all with the word. And though he never gave in to the pressure, he never wavered, he never deviated from one bit from his message or from his mission. There was in his faithfulness and in his steadfastness, there was not one word of angry defiance in his mouth. In fact, all along the way, Luke 23, 34 tells us that he actually prayed for their forgiveness. I really don't know what I can say to add to that. I sat in the study this week trying to figure out how do I how do I expound on that? I don't know how to. Just stop and let that sink in. Perfectly innocent in every way. And perfectly innocent in his response to serious unjust accusations and abuse. Consider what he suffered. How can this be? Well, he's God. He's perfect. Okay, I know. So if anybody had the right to respond in a different way, it was him. So how do we, who do we think we are <laughs> when we start demanding our rights? But here's Christ. How can he respond the way he did? How can he respond in such a gracious and long-suffering way? Peter tells us at the end of verse 23. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And here we see Christ's example of honorable living displayed in his confidence. Where did he place 
his confidence? Where was his focus? The idea that he committed himself, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The idea there is that he handed himself over to his father. Even as he hung on the cross and prepared to breathe his last breath, what does Jesus pray to the Father? Into your hands I commit my spirit. As one commentator explained, undergirding Jesus' peaceful, resolute acceptance of suffering was an unshakable confidence in the perfectly righteous plan of him who judges righteously. He knew God would vindicate him according to his perfect holy justice. He is the believer's perfect example of suffering for righteousness' sake, and he sets the standard for them to entrust themselves to God as their righteous judge. Though saints are not sinless, they are righteous in Christ and have the promise of God's vindication of them. Believer, are you suffering? Are you tempted to take matters into your own hands and stand up and fight against the world's ungodliness with the world's ungodly weapons? Are you tempted to stand up and fight in a worldly way? In this moment, you need to remember that you are safe in the hands of the perfectly just and perfectly almighty God. And vengeance belongs to him and who will repent. Therefore, as the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, so we do not lose heart. Believer, don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is written, by the way, by a man who knew what it was like to rot away and waste away in a prison cell. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal, and your hope is in those eternal things. That's not pie-in-the-sky theology. That is not being too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good that is the only way you will be any earthly good, is to be that heavenly mind. So take heart, Christian, because in Christ you see something of the eternal weight of glory that belongs to all of those who are in Christ. And though we suffer here and now, we don't suffer without purpose. We don't suffer eternally. We follow in the footsteps of Christ. Now, when we come to verse 24, we see Christ's example of honorable living displayed in his substitution. And this is where this becomes intensely personal. This is where it's not, not as much about following Jesus and doing what he does. This is about looking to Jesus and seeing what he has done for us in particular. Not just what Christ has done, but what he has done for 
us. Peter says in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That phrase, die to sin and live to righteousness, should take our minds back to verses 11 and 12 when we see our life as strangers in this world, putting away sin, living by God's holiness. But again, we find the language in these verses coming straight out of Isaiah 53, as it were, in verses 4 through 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That phrase, by the way, we looked at that Christ on the cross and we assumed he was dying because he had done something wrong, right? That's, that's what the people in Jesus' day were thinking. That's not true. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The wrath that we should bear God put on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this concept in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If we want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt how we are to respond to suffering in this life and to those who mistreat us, we need look no further than the fact that Christ suffered infinite injustice at the hands of men for us, even while we were still his enemies. Now we start to see it wasn't just the world out there that was the aggressor in Christ's death. It was you and me. And look at how he responds to us. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because he thought there was some good in us that was worth redeeming. He didn't die for us because he looked down the corridors of time and somehow figured out, oh, those people are going to want to be saved. No, he died for us while we were still his enemies. His enemies and loving it. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is the model we follow. That is the example we see even in our own salvation. And then as, a, as it pours out, as it manifests itself in our own life, Paul exhorts us to respond to others with the same grace and forgiveness, even when we suffer. And he says that in Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? Because I said so? No. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. Has anybody in this world ever offended you more than you have offended God in your sin? Paul says in going on, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christians, as you suffer in this world, 
for Christ's sake, as you watch others suffer, as you watch the world disrespect your God and disrespect His Word and disrespect His people, do not respond with worldly anger and selfish defiance. Rather, consider how great your own sin is before a holy God and how infinite is His grace and His mercy toward you. How is it that the Apostle Paul could call his suffering a momentary, a light and momentary affliction? Because he viewed his present circumstances in the light of the most amazing truth that could ever cross the mind of a human being, that I am an infinite sinner before an infinitely holy God, and he has set his grace on me. Fix your mind and your heart on the Lord Jesus Christ in your suffering. Fix your gaze on the gospel and on the glorious eternal promises he has given to you in Christ. And as Peter has already written, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they will, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that brings us to the conclusion of the matter in verse 25, where we see Christ's example of honorable living displayed in his care for his people. This isn't a call, beloved, just to suck it up and do what you know you're supposed to do. This is a call to entrust your lives, your situations, your concerns, your troubles into the hands of a capable and competent and loving and trustworthy God. Not only must you do this, you can do this. And you are tenderly invited to do this. Peter writes, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And once again, we find language in Isaiah 53, verse 6, just like this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. Now that is another statement of Christ's substitution. But what I want us to notice in these in, in, in verse 25 here is the titles that are given to Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is where we find a specific invitation, a specific call, even a specific enticement to God's people in the midst of our suffering on the basis of everything that we have covered to this point. Since the Lord Jesus Christ is all of these things and has done all of these things for us, and since he has so perfectly modeled a godly response to suffering in this world, let us run to him in faith with boldness and confidence, trusting in his perfect plan for our lives and his perfect leadership. He is our shepherd. Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
shepherd cares for the sheep. He feeds, he defends his sheep. He is our overseer. He doesn't just know the circumstances you're facing today. He knows the backstory. But even more than that, he knows what lies ahead. He knows the big picture. Why? Because he is the author writing the story. And he has already told you where you're headed if you're in Christ. He has already told you you're headed to eternal glory. And everything that you face now is by his sovereign design to prepare you for that day. To keep you from getting too attached to this world. To keep you from feeling too comfortable here. To keep you from getting carried away by your own sinful temptations. He is preparing you just as he is preparing a place for you. He is your overseer. And he is your shepherd who will tenderly and lovingly lead you all the way home. As the good shepherd himself has encouraged us in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And again, as we already saw, as the writer to the Hebrews exhorts us, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, with confidence, beloved, draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And again, we do that because we are looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, set your minds on him, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, who endured from you such hostility against himself, and yet has given you his grace, his forgiveness so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And finally, as we consider the shepherd and overseer of our souls, consider the comforting words of the psalmist in Psalm 23. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness 
and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of Yahweh. How do we respond when we suffer? We hold on to this world loosely. And we turn our gaze to the Lord Jesus Christ in whose house we will dwell in glory forever. Let's pray.